A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. I'm now back from Edinburgh and into the swing of the regular shows again. And this was a live show recorded at the Other Palace featuring Justine Greening, uh, someone who commands cross-party support, respected across the board, uh, former Education Secretary and a Secretary of State for International Development, as well as other, as well as other ministerial posts, and a straight-talking northerner. And uh, Justine, I knew she was going to be a great guest. She was even better than I predicted. I'd interviewed her before on my TV show Unspun, and she was great. She was even better on the podcast. And there are moments when you interview people where you get a real clarity about who they are and what they believe. And one thing that really struck me, and it'd be interesting to hear from you if you get the same thing, she wastes so few words. The economy of her language, she's she says absolutely what she means, and there's no waffle at all, and it's really clear. And I just think politics at the moment, high-level politics, is really missing that. That straight talk. And usually when people say straight talking, what they mean is sometimes slightly offensive. They think of Nigel Farage uh, or people like that. What what I mean by this is just a really clear thinker who can articulate in straightforward language with passion what they truly believe. And her passion for education is is real and it really shines out. And it's just one of those important reminders uh, that often we see health and education as core Labour values, but for many Conservatives, um, same with Tim Lawson, education is a core value for them as well. So so she is a phenomenal guest. Um, So enjoy. Hello everyone, welcome to the show. Oh, it's good to be back, I've missed you all. Uh, Give me a cheer if this is your first time at the political party. Oh, excellent, plenty of newcomers. Give me a cheer if you've been here before. Oh, excellent, plenty of regulars. Well, thank you very much. Has anyone been to the Labour Party conference this week? (laughs) Well, it's all right, you can reveal yourself. It's a friendly show, but uh, thank you very much for coming. Did did anyone go? No. No one who wants to admit it anyway. Uh, Interesting conference uh, week. Uh, You may have seen that on the news this morning. Labour MP Laura Smith, a big supporter of Jeremy Corbyn, uh, has called for a general strike, uh, the first that we've had since 1926. (laughs) Uh, in order to trigger a general election. Now, um, general strikes are usually at a time of industrial strife and upheaval. They're not usually done on a whim just to have another general election. Uh, and usually, you know, there's a sort of romance around striking, isn't there? Because the old industries we used to have, like steel working and coal mines, like, it would, if we had a general strike today, it wouldn't have the same earthy romance around it, would it? I've got 300 senior creative solution executives up there. <laughs> We've been on strike for three weeks. They have not created any multi-platform deliverables for end users in nearly two months. This strike's going to be the end of this boutique lifestyle business. Incredible. Uh, Richard Burgeon, who's in the shadow cabinet, was on stage with Laura Smith and gave it a standing ovation. Uh, you can see the video on the internet. He was interviewed today. They said, uh, Richard Burgeon, a member of the shadow cabinet, why did you give a standing ovation to the idea of a general strike? He said, I did not give it a standing ovation. I stood up and I applauded. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't kill him. I just shot him in the face until he stopped breathing. 
There was a distinct difference. The MSM and the Corbyn is the... Well, I've got lost in the wormhole already. Um, there also was a suggestion at the Labour Party conference this week, there was a policy suggestion that a Corbyn-led government would nationalise the internet. Um, <laughs> quite apart from that being a dreadful idea, I mean, if that ever happened, no one would want the job. Uh, as Secretary of State for the internet, would they? If you had to be responsible for what people did online <laughs> and answer it in Parliament, I mean, it would make the Parliament channel much more exciting. Uh, well, I understand uh, the Honourable uh, Gentleman's question and uh, the closest figures I can give him uh, uh, to the nearest... Uh, 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 all I can say is that I understand where he's coming from uh, and the, the most accurate, based on the most accurate figures, I can say that last month, at least a third of the male population did masturbate at their own computer. Uh, obviously, uh, well, the party opposite chair, these figures are down on the previous government. Mr. Speaker. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, uh, there, was, uh, there was an alternative conference as well. Momentum hold uh, their uh, conference in concurrence with the Labour Party conference called the World Transformed. And this is where a lot more radical left-wing ideas uh, are, are, uh, are shared. It's far more radical than what happens at the Labour Party conference. At the World Transformed this week, uh, there were political sessions for eight-year-olds. Um, well, I mean, I'm not sure how many eight-year-olds went to the sessions or what these sessions involved. Um, the very hungry caterpillar uh, having to go to a food bank. Uh, <laughs> Thomas the Tank would be ruined, wouldn't it? I mean, the whole, the whole network would be privatised and the self-identifying big-boned controller would be uh, <laughs> overthrown for a PFI contract with Carillion. So, uh, spare a thought for the poor children that went uh, to uh, to the event. There was a reading group on anti-Semitism, apparently. At this, uh, I mean, imagine, I would just sort of hope Ken Livingstone turned up to it. I've got a few books I can recommend. Have you heard of Mein Kampf? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, there, was, uh, there was also a, a suggestion, there's, uh, let's talk, there was a suggestion, that there was a session rather, called Let's Talk About Mental Health and Capitalism. Uh, exactly, why has no one ever thought of combining those two <laughs> subjects before? Uh, and in the conference guide it says, uh, we are suffering a mental health crisis, but we have never talked about the root cause, neoliberal capitalism. <laughs> I mean, I dare suggest that if you go to one of these counselling sessions, you're not going to get the best advice. So you say your dad killed your granddad um, and you've held yourself responsible ever since. Um, I think there's a more obvious, I think there's a more obvious uh, perpetrator, Starbucks. <laughs> the Lib Dems had their conference, of course, last week. Uh, did anyone go to the Lib Dem conference? No, fair dues. I mean, these are all the correct answers you're giving, by the way. It's normal to have not gone to these things these days. Joe Swinson, of course, made history just a fortnight ago by being the first a parent to ever take her baby into a House of Commons debate. Uh, of course, it was a bit awkward because certainly someone fell asleep and filled their nappy, but they tidied Vince up. <laughs> <laughs> Is that too harsh on Vince? Uh, he, uh, he, of course, uh, gave his big speech last week and he fucked it up, didn't he? Because he briefed everyone, the Lib Dems have briefed everyone, that Vince Cable was going to describe Brexit as an erotic spasm. <laughs> Which, I mean, apart from anything else, I don't know what that phrase means. Surely in political communications you're meant to use a, a phrase that... I've never heard anyone say, fancy a couple of drinks and uh, back to mind for an erotic spasm. <laughs> well, it sounds horrible, doesn't it? In the end, he, he messed it up. He said exotic um, spreser. <laughs> so he couldn't even remember what it was on himself. Oh, it just made me think, I'm not sure Vince... I mean, I don't want to cast aspersion on the elder. I don't think he genuinely knows what... If that's what he thinks Brexit is... I don't think he understands it at all. Sorry, Vince, just one more time. We've got a group of students here. Could you explain what Brexit is? 
Well, yes, it's like when you get an erection, isn't it? No. Well, it's a good job he wasn't more explicit. I mean, this Tory Brexit is like waking up with a hard-on and cracking out the loop. That's uh, not. What the fuck is going on, Vince? To do this with all political subjects now, what well, privatisation, it's like, uh, it's like dogging, isn't it? Yeah, it's, just like, it's just one big gangbang, that's how I understand it. And it only works in his voice. He actually makes it sound quite sensible when you do the voice. Uh, of course, uh, the Tories are in a mess as well. It's their conference next week. Is anyone going to go to the Tory party conference next week? Yes. Justine Greening's going next week. <laughs> it was all a set up to that. Excellent news. Uh, of course, the Tory party has changed quite a lot since we last met. Boris Johnson is now no longer uh, the, uh, the, uh, the foreign secretary. He resigned. Uh, from government over Brexit. Well, he resigned because David Davis resigned and he didn't want to be uh, left out. Um, <laughs> he resigned after saying... I mean, this is one of the most incredible things, quite apart from all the other offensive things he said. He was at a European summit and European business leaders said to him, look, British businesses are really worried about Brexit. And he said, well, fuck business. <laughs> now, the Tory party is the party of business. The Tory saying fuck business, but like the Green Party saying, oh, fuck dolphins. <laughs> yeah. Like the Labour Party said, "Oh fuck anti-Semitism." Be a betrayal of everything the party stands for. Be awkward. Uh, he's now been replaced as Foreign Secretary by Jeremy Hunt, a man who doesn't know whether his own wife is Chinese or Japanese. Been married to her for nine years. How can he not know? Well, I never asked on the first date. She's got more awkward after that. She might be Korean. I ain't got a fucking clue, mate. Dominic Raab is our new Secretary of State for Brexit. You might have seen him on Andrew Marr the other week. Now, I just think whether you voted Leave or Remain, whether Tory or Labour or whatever in between, I think we all just want a bit of reassurance that Brexit is not going to be a disaster. He went on Andrew Marr, and his opening line, his first words out of his mouth as our new Secretary of State, he said, uh, you'll forgive me, Andrew, uh, if I don't have a laser-like focus uh, on the detail. <laughs> no. No, that's the minimum we expect, detail. That's a political equivalent of going, just before we start the interview, Andrew, you should know, I know fuck all, mate. <laughs> Ask your little questions, there's nothing in there. <laughs> he then, I mean, this moment will live for me for the rest of my life. Andrew Marr then asked him whether it was true that there were secret government plans to stockpile supplies of food, medicine and blood because week one of Brexit might be so catastrophic, supplies of all three won't get through without help of the RAF. And Dominic Raab said... Well, I can't comment on specifics. <laughs> I'm not excited, mate. Don't try and prick-tease me about it. Is it true there are secret government plans to use the unemployed as meat? Well, I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> Fuck me. Because Theresa May said, this is the whole thing, you know, this checkers deal, this in-out, it satisfies no one. And this is part of the problem. I'm sure some of you have read the white paper, the checkers deal, whatever you want to call it. Um, uh, Boris said it was like polishing a turd. Um, now, uh, turd polishing may be one of the last few British industries left after Brexit, so let's not, <laughs> let's not talk down the great British industry of, of, of turd polishing. But part of the problem is the whole thing satisfies no one. It's meant to be a compromise, but you can't compromise on Brexit. In the end, you either want to be in or you want to be out, and it's a fudge. We'll be in a customs arrangement for goods, but not for services. We'll be able to access to uh, certain European agencies. We'd have no say over how they're run. Of course it's pissed everyone off. But like saying, right, you want to go bowling, and you want to go to the cinema, the zoo it is. No? Okay, uh, what we'll do, we'll, we'll watch other people bowl, catch the last half hour of a different film, and uh, won't go to the zoo at all. No, this is pissing everybody off. And that's why 
Theresa May's uh, current authority level has plummeted now. It's just below that of a supply teacher. <laughs> it's only a matter of time before they start humming. <laughs> it's getting really bad in there for her. Uh, but there's a line in the white paper that really strikes me, uh, and it really rings out. And I can't, it's a real measure of how far politics has changed, even in the last year. This is official government policy. I can't believe a Prime Minister put her name to this line. We will be leaving the European Union, but we will not be leaving Europe. Yeah, I didn't realise that was on the table. How hard a Brexit is Jacob Rees-Mogg lobbying for? <laughs> Nothing short of total geological separation. Um, he, uh, he described the white paper. He described current government policy on Brexit. He said, this is the greatest vassalage uh, since King John paid tribute to Philip II at Le Goulet in 1200. Uh, an event he was probably at, the <laughs> timeless vampiric bastard. <laughs> He's older than his CV, isn't he? There's no way he's been... He's been around hundreds of... Does he do that everywhere he goes? Oh, this is the finest Chablis since Henry IV toasted Marie de Dimitri at Florence in 1600. It's all well and good, mate, but they're three for a tenner. Buy one or fuck off, will you, mate? <laughs> As if he shops anywhere where anything is three for a tenner. But uh, he also... He also was called today. He says the Brexit he wants... Said, the Brexit uh, I want is a supercalifragilisticexpialidocious Brexit. I mean, yeah, exactly. The only film with a nanny in it. <laughs> Got some... Uh, but supercalifragilisticexpialidocious Brexit. I mean, the first thing, that's not serious. And what does that, what's that mean in policy terms? Out of the single market, out of the customs union, and then we have to jump through a chalk painting on a pavement. <laughs> March 29th. That's how we're going to leave the European Union. On March the 29th next year, Theresa May and her husband are just going to walk out of Downing Street and go like that. <laughs> Spits what? Let's see how we get on with that. Uh, obviously, uh, internationally, Donald Trump has been... Uh, there's an amazing clip of him at the UN. Have you seen it yet? Where says the UN General Assembly, we have been already, we are already the, the most successful US administration in history. We've achieved more than every other administration in the history, in the history of the United States. And the UN General Assembly bursts out laughing at him. <laughs> and he sort of takes it as a comedy. He goes, I didn't expect that. <laughs> Like, it's a compliment. Great crowd, by the way. I love them. They love it. All my jokes. They're very good people. Beautiful people, by the way. <laughs> Great people. Uh, we've learned a lot about him in the last few months since we met. We know that he's a coward. Uh, he met, uh, we, we know this, uh, the joint press conference he did with Vladimir Putin just a few weeks ago, where he's asked a direct question. Did, um, uh, did Russia collude and intervene in the American election? He stood there next to Putin. He had the opportunity. He said, uh, I, don't, I don't see why they would have. Oh, I don't, I don't think they would have done that. Now, obviously, awkward to say it in front of the boss. Uh, so that was, that was chick-fil-a. Uh, there's also a sort of charming uh, naivety to it. Well, I gotta tell you, people say that Russia intervened in our election. And I met this dude, and he's in charge of Russia. And I asked him if they did it. And he said no, and he would know. <laughs> he would know. He's shaking his head. What more can I do? And then the following day, remember, there was the clarification. What I meant to say was, I think they would not have. Now, the whole thing with that is it's not a clarification at all. It's the same with Labour and Brexit this week. The whole thing is about deliberate confusion. How can you hold someone to account if you don't know what you're holding them to account for? It's all about creating a mist 
in which you can operate with impunity. Uh, it's deliberate. The, the clarification makes it more complicated. What I meant to say, by the way, and I'm happy to clarify, what I meant to say was that I haven't, shouldn't did anything that I wasn't having, and I've not, not haven't did anything that I shouldn't have wasn't did, and I can't make it any clearer than that. <laughs> Incredible to watch him just fucking get away with it. Um, there we are, ladies and gentlemen, it's, uh, it's always a pleasure to see so many people down here for a political night, particularly uh, during conferences. I was going to say when so many of you have been to the conferences, but not a single soul. <laughs> uh, we will now adjourn uh, for a quick break, after which I'm joined by the wonderful Justin Greening, someone that uh, I've wanted to interview for a very long time. Yay! It's true, it's very, very true. Uh, so, think of your questions, because as always, at the end, I will open the floor up to the audience. It is lovely to see you all again. I'll be back in 20 minutes for now. I'm Matt Ford. See you in a bit. Thank you very much. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, tonight's guest uh, is, uh, well, a very much uh, a, a political case study for our times. In normal political weather, uh, tonight's guest would be still serving in the Cabinet, potentially even uh, with leadership ambitions, although we'll find out tonight whether they, they, uh, they burn or not. But if we hadn't gone through with a, with a referendum and things like that, Justine Greening would absolutely be at the heart of the British government at the moment, influencing not just British, but global events. And it's a real tragedy that talented people who are, I think, around where most people are, are now on the fringes of their parties, uh, stuck on their back benches. Tonight's guest had a meteoric rise. She was the face of the 2005 general election as one of the few Tory gains that night, and her image was uh, projected around the country when she uh, sensationally won Putney in Blair's last victory. She served as Secretary of State for International Development and Education. Please give a huge political party welcome to Justine Greening. <laughs> Thank you. Please have a seat. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, now, obviously, the, I mean, the main thing that I need to ask you is um, uh, everyone's been watching uh, The Bodyguard. Yes. <laughs> it's, a, it's a show about a female cabinet minister who um, has a relationship with uh, a security guard, a personal yeah. protection officer. Um, was that something that ever... <laughs> Happened to you or, or, or that you ever witnessed? Well, I didn't have a bodyguard, um, other than when I, I had to go to Iraq and um, Afghanistan a couple of times, but no, I spent the first three episodes saying to my other half, Tess, just how totally unrealistic it was. He'd never have been allowed to be your bodyguard and, and all of that. So, um, but then it got really good. Episode four, it literally just turbocharged and I thought, this is amazing. So, but I knew, you know, he was obviously going to survive because everyone's been writing up series two. So I'm looking forward to it, though. I thought it was really good. In terms of, it must be a weird thrill to watch it as a politician and as someone who served in the cabinet. I mean, in terms of <laughs> yeah. my limited experience in politics, it was like, it just isn't the way that the, the Brits do security. It's far less visible and it's far more discreet. Um, and the security guards, on the whole, are better actors than the bloke. <laughs> uh, that was my main problem with it. Um, but were there, were there details that you noticed in there? Oh, God. Um, well, I'd never have been so shitty to her as she was in episode one. Um, you do exactly what they say because, you know, they're the professionals and you've got a team around you, so if, if you faff about... I mean, she'd never been left in that that car, you know, when they separated. What was that other car, backup car, doing, faffing around, miles away, not providing any support? So, and and, and the shooter. Yeah. 
up on that what was it 13 story and he managed to get his bullet right down there and then in through the car <laughs> and took out that driver and i was like he's a real loss to the british army <laughs> because you know that bloke's amazing <laughs> Do you always try and watch? I'm trying to think of other political threats. I suppose the thick of it and the yes minister are the only things, whether there have been other house of cards, I suppose, back in the day. Do you always try and watch things that are, are in the political zeitgeist on television? So when I was a minister, I couldn't watch the thick of it because it was just a little too close <laughs> to day-to-day -to -day life. But afterwards, you know, I've watched, um, was it, W1A about the Olympics. It's just yeah, yeah. hysterical because it's just close enough. To be to be funny, um, but it removed enough to be able to laugh at it. Obviously, the big uh, TV event of this week's been the Labour Party conference that we've mm. all been uh, watching <laughs> all day, every day on the, the Parliament Channel. Um, mm. Have you watched any of it at all? Did you watch Corbyn's speech today? I didn't. I'll <laughs> just be honest. I, I've, I've kind of followed it in the news, but I didn't watch his speech today because I was just, what on earth was I doing? I was I was doing a social mobility meeting actually. Um, I could hear something going on um, outside, because it was actually at ITV, funnily enough. But no, I haven't watched it, but I do think he has played quite a canny game of trying to say he'll do basically this EEA and EFTA thing, which a lot of my colleagues have already said they think is a brilliant idea. And now they're going to have to presumably work out how come they don't now think it's a brilliant idea, because it's Jeremy Corbyn's idea, but there you go. <laughs> Because you support people's vote uh, on the final deal. Um, Corbyn isn't quite there yet, but w would you, if it came to it, would you share a platform with Corbyn in a, in a future referendum? Well, I don't think he's going to ever really support a proper referendum. So the one they were talking about this week was one with one of the key options that people might want to vote for off the ballot paper, which I just think is silly. I think you just get probably 18 million people spoiling their ballot paper by, vo by voting Remain on it. So yeah. my view is um, you've just got to go back out to people, and I think Parliament's gridlocked. Well, this is part of the problem, isn't it, is that whenever people say we're going to get a general election or a, or a referendum or anything, the reason why those things are being talked about so much isn't necessarily because of Corbyn and any momentum on the left, although the, that undoubtedly sort of exists, but it is because the parliamentary numbers just don't stack up for mm. any sort mm. of Brexit or indeed remaining in the EU. I mean, in terms of the Tory party, when you look around at your colleagues, are there people that could be persuaded one way or the other or is it absolutely set? I think, I think nobody wants to end up in a no-deal scenario, but at the same time, I mean, the, the problem with Brexit is it just doesn't work in Parliament. So Parliament works on party political lines and then you've got this massive strategic issue for Britain, which is Brexit, that cuts across all of that. And it literally, our political system has fallen over. It can't cope with it. And so whether it's the Conservative Party in power, obviously facing the biggest problems on that, or Labour trying to somehow fudge it too. Both parties have tried to fudge it. And my view, I totally agree with you, my, my sense is you're in or you're out. And I think the public are confused, actually, at being somehow told that there is a middle ground because that's not what the referendum ballot paper had on it. And I don't think that there'll be a majority for anything probably in Parliament. And that's a problem because it, it's like the equivalent of deciding we'll go on a journey. And then you turn up at the train station and the, the ticket man's like, right, where are you going? And you're like, well, I don't like Dewsbury. <laughs> not going to go there. And he's like, OK, let's try this one again. Ticket two. And you're like, not Totnes. I hate that place. 
Um, and, and yet the train is going to leave. So we, we have to find some, some route through. And my conclusion was that I don't see any other way of finding a route without going back to people, I'm, I'm afraid to say it. And I also feel as a local MP, genuinely, so most of my constituents voted Remain. Yeah. I campaigned for Remain, but 30% voted Leave. And I just think this is so important. I, don't, I genuinely don't feel like, I don't see why they should be disenfranchised mm. by me because I happen to have my view. I just think it's too important and I can't think ever of a time when any generation of voters have voted for something that actually genuinely fetters the choice of future voters. Do you see what I mean? So if we, if we leave and we get on with Brexit, then you couldn't go back into the EU on the same terms. So I just think, it's, I, I just think there's three directions. They've all got pros, they've all got cons. You can have a clean break with all the, the challenges on the economy, the Northern Ireland border. You can try and do a halfway house where we end up with rules without say, but you've kind of mitigated some of the, the economic risks. But then the next time the rules change, you've got to go back over it and renegotiate all over again. Um, and again, the Northern Ireland border. Or you just stay in and you've got all the political gubbins that goes along with that that a lot of people hate. But it's one of those three. So... I don't know what people want genuinely now. I think we're two years down the road on Brexit. I think people probably thought that things would fall into place and they mm. haven't and that Parliament would sort it out and it hasn't. So my sense is, yeah, people need to, to kind of go back and say, well, which of these three routes? In terms of a no-deal Brexit, there are some people that would like a no-deal, aren't there? And some of them are in your party. Like Jacob Rees-Mogg seems like he's, he's perfectly comfortable with the no-deal Brexit. Do you ever talk to him about it? Yeah, I have, I have met Jacob, actually. <laughs> so my point to him was, to be honest, my point to him was you lot have really messed up <laughs> because you won 52% of the vote and the next thing they should have done was to try and work out how to get to 62%, how to win over more people. Like, genuinely explain why, having taken this decision, they really felt it was the right thing. And actually, instead of that, they sort of dug their heels in and just said, well, Brexit means Brexit and all of that. And, and I think they missed an opportunity to try and make the argument. And because of that, actually, now you look at the polls on Brexit and it's still 50% remain. And the pieces haven't fallen into place. And I think a lot of people are just thinking, well, maybe this isn't a good idea. Maybe I shouldn't just accept it, actually. I was willing to go with it. But after two years and we don't feel like we've really sorted out the basics... Maybe it's genuinely not a good idea and I voted Remain and that was the right thing. But the thing is, in the end, I just don't see any way through it other than to go back to people and, and it's a unique situation. So I, I, that's my, my sense is it's the only way to really resolve it. So when, when you have this conversation with Jacob Rees-Mogg or other Brexiteers, what do they say then? Do they say, oh, stop talking Britain down, you know, this is going to be great, leaving without a deal is a, a really good idea. Do they, have they ever made a, a persuasive case? Well, I mean, they know what my position is, but I think, ironically, there's a lot of commonality at the same time because they think Chequers is the worst of all worlds. Yeah. So I think, I think to the extent that we both think you're in or you're out and, and, and actually you, you get on with one strategy or the other strategy, that we've got some common ground on. Um, and I think, you know, from my perspective, I, I totally respect that people have different views on all of this. I, I don't... Now, I've got my view. I, I don't want to ruin Britain. They don't want to ruin Britain. You know, that's politics. So, so I sort of 
get that. And, and I think you have to accept that the reason every prime minister, whether you were Cameron or whether you're Harold Wilson, have a referendum is because it just cuts across normal party political mm. um, arguments. So you kind of have to have this battleground that's over there so that you can then have the normal battleground left for people to come back to. Uh, so next week, it, it will probably dominate the Tory party conference. And I've almost lost the will to live on Brexit, <laughs> I should say, at this point. So, yeah, it's not what I came into politics to do, No, I have to say. So do you think, looking into our crystal ball, do you think uh, the Tory party conference next week will be tumultuous? Well, explain what that phrase means. Or, 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 well, how do we define tumultuous? Well, will, the divisions, the, answer, will the divisions be vocal and visible? Do you think you'll have... You know, people going off message on the platform. Will Boris be there doing fringe events, slagging the government off? Uh, yes and yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. So at, least, so. at least it'll be more entertaining uh, than last year's. I think it'll be interesting, yeah. That, and that's a, actually, that's an understatement. I think it will be a really tricky, difficult Tory party conference. But, hey, that's politics, isn't it? It's democracy. I, th I think there'll be a big debate with our party that plays out in, in Birmingham. And in terms of uh, conferences themselves, do you enjoy the, the Conservative Party conference? No, I hate going to conferences. <laughs> I'm like most MPs. I, I, I don't know. I just, I loved it as, a, as an activist, but for some reason, I've just never particularly enjoyed it. Um, no, I, I can never, I always like to get home, basically. Because it's, it's, it's interesting when you see the, di I mean, no, no one in here has been to a party conference this year, but I'm sure people have been in the past. Well, I've, the first ones I started going to were Labour Party conferences and the big exhibition halls with lots of charities and lots of left-wing causes and, you know, multinationals and whatever else, but a real sort of emphasis on campaigning. Then I remember going to the Tory Party Spring Conference in 2005. I think Fortnum and Mason had a stall. There was, there was a stall in the middle, a barber selling clothes. It was like a barber jacket yeah, stand. I was like, this is fucking way better. Like, this is brilliant. They had, they had a really good stand that I really went to town on one year where they had um, Gordon Brown's Porky Pies. And it was a, it was a free pork pie stand done out mm -hmm. like a butcher's. And it was Gordon Brown's Porky Pies stuffing the nation since 1997. <laughs> <laughs> I put on a lot of weight that month. It was, oh, I, I think it's a real You're reminding me it's actually really good fun. It yeah. is good fun, isn't it? Like, there is a whole, because you watch it on the telly like I did this week, and it is just the conference hall that you see. But the, the rest of it, the circus around it, and, the, and there is a lot of, uh, there are a lot of ideas there, and a lot of people actually saying some really interesting things off the main platform. So there's a case to be made for them, isn't there? Well, so I'm, I'm doing a few fringes. I'm doing one on this social mobility pledge that I've been doing since um, March. And, yeah, I mean, I'm probably making it out to be worse than it really is. But um, I think it's one of those where you're always kind of relieved to get home. Yeah. And I certainly was last year, having you know, sat through that, you know, the PM speech where she lost her voice. And if any of you, well, Line of Duty also the yeah. same. It was literally like being in one of those, like watching Line of Duty, because it was. I was just, oh God, I hope she's going to get to the end of it, which she did. But um, she did eventually. It was a nail biter. It was a total nail biter. So your sex, obviously, they have the cabinet in, in prominent seats for cutaway shots and things, don't they? So you, we, how how far from the podium were you sat? Really close, close enough to think, what is that idiot who's kind of walked down the aisle and headed up towards the? Yeah. You know, I just thought, is he? Does he have, you know, I mean, is it a security problem and they've yeah. got to get her out or, or what? And, of course, it all masked the fact that, actually, what had really happened was David Mundell's phone had gone off 
just before then with Mission Impossible playing really loudly. No way! <laughs> I was like, you were really lucky because any other conference, you'd have been the story mate. I mean, you, you then resigned from Theresa May's government. Um, <laughs> yes, a a few do. months after that conference, it was early this year. Watching her go through that, what, what, did you feel sorry for her? Totally, because we all get a really bad cough and I just think <laughs> the chances of you getting that on that day, I mean, 365 bloody days of the year and she gets it then and I, you know, it's very hard to give a speech when you don't have a voice. So now I felt really sorry for her. And I just thought, you know, the security lot, that bloke could have been anyone. I mean, you know, just genuinely for the audience and, and all of that, you know should have been sorted out. Was there any part of you that felt like getting up and giving a glass of water or something like that? How far away were you from taking direct I, action? I was more in the line of, when is someone going to take that bloke out yeah. and shift him, to be honest? <laughs> because I just thought he, he could have anything on him. And at the beginning, nobody really knew what he was doing, but literally within about, I don't know, 20 seconds, I thought, hang on a second. <laughs> he's really close to the Prime Minister and he was faffing around with Boris and, <laughs> and then finally somebody bundled him out. But no, that was, I was just more worried about all of that, actually. So Simon Brodkin is a comedian who, who plays the yeah. character of Lee Nelson, yeah. who, uh, uh, who I know. Um, I didn't know he was going to do that. Uh, and he's done various stunts. He did Seth Blatter, he did uh, Donald Trump with the Nazi golf balls at, at Turnbury. Um, <laughs> I mean, all of his other stunts are a, a bit more popular than that one. I think... Part of the reason why, perhaps, <coughs> it didn't catch on as a stunt was, do you, and, and, and is this fair to think, even the public who wouldn't vote for Theresa May just generally feel a bit sorry for her? I think she's just taken over probably one of the toughest roles you can possibly have at a difficult time. And I, d I don't think it's... I, I think when she, I think she's then played a, 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 a difficult hand, I think at times badly as well, in the sense of... You know, my sense is after Brexit, she should have just gunned for the centre ground and said, look, you know, we've got to try and find something that does work a way through for everyone. Um, and instead, she sort of tacked towards Brexit means Brexit and all of that. And, and I get that, but I think the consequence of it was quite a divisive amount of politics in the UK um, that is going to be hard to pull people back together. And what's she like behind the scenes? Is she more relaxed and fluent? when she's uh, behind the desk at number 10 or no not at all no not really no i think i think she's um no basically no she's pretty much she's no you know no. she's very professional she's very matter of fact um it's as you would expect to be honest she has a tough job she gets on with it she stands aground but you don't really have that those kind of niceties so for example you wouldn't be discussing the bodyguard probably <laughs> with her or no. talking about a man shooting bullets <laughs> no. in a sort of corner fashion. But then I think it's almost like the Gordon Bradley. She should just make a virtue of that. I suppose in a way she does. She doesn't pretend to be anything else, does she? She's not, she's not doing Facebook live events with Stormzy and pretending to I think people to be... are what they are and, and <laughs> they're not. So I think you've just got to... I suppose you've just got to be yourself. But, um, but no... So how did you deal with that then? Because you, you served in the cabinet for a number of years. How, were you, was it something that was on your mind about how you behaved in public and what your tone was going to be as a minister and being real and things like that? I I think that so for me I've always I kind of I've all, I always basically tell it like I see it and 
you know, sometimes prime ministers like hearing that, sometimes they haven't liked hearing that, but I've always felt my job as a Secretary of State is to cite them on what I think the key points are yeah. that they need to be aware of, and that's what I've always done, and that's that. So I kind of, I generally stand my ground, I don't flip around. You know, I suppose if you're somebody who is a Conservative who's grown up in Rotherham, then, you yeah. know, de, de facto, <laughs> you tend to think for yourself. Yeah. So, um, no, I generally work out what I think about something and then pretty much, that, you know, that's that. I, I've kind of thought it through. You know, I don't, don't just switch because somebody tells me that they don't agree. So, in terms of the two Prime Ministers you served, David Cameron and, and, and Theresa May, with David Cameron, if you were direct and you, you cited him on the things, how, how would he take that? Uh, it depends. When it was the um, <laughs> when it was that flyover on the M4 just before the Olympics, which do you remember? If you remember the Boston Manor Viaduct, whatever it's called, it was the flyover that everyone coming into Britain and then coming into London was going to travel over, and it developed a big crack. Yeah. And um, he was like, "Why is it developed the crack now?" And I'm like, "Well." I don't know, why did my fridge break just before the last election? You know, I, these things happen. It's an, I said to him, it's an inanimate object. Yeah. Nobody really knows. But the good news is we checked it yeah. and now we can fix it. But it was a seat of your pants thing getting it sorted, which we did. And, uh, and we, we, we did a great, great job. The DFT was brilliant. Um, so he, he was always you know, uh, didn't always like hearing tricky things, but, but took it where I think for uh, Theresa, yeah, I mean, sometimes it's, uh, you know, that's it, done. She doesn't always want to take on board what you're saying. So Cameron was more receptive out of the two? I think, um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think no, no prime minister likes hearing problems. I mean, you know, but actually you don't solve problems by... Taking, off, taking them off the table and pretending they're not there. And, you know, I've, I kind of, well, I think my job, I, I've always felt my job as a Secretary of State is to look ahead, try and fix problems before they arise, and then cite a Prime Minister when I think they're significant enough that they need to be aware of decisions that I think need to be made. And, in fact, probably 70% of your time as a Secretary of State is stopping things from going horribly wrong in about 9 to 12 months' time, um, hopefully successfully. <laughs> So, um, no, I mean, you know, I, that's what I think my job is. I actually think the best teams are the ones where you've got people with really different views and where people do feel. I mean, I always said in, the, in the, all the departments I was lucky enough to run, you know, I told people that I wanted to hear about the issues and what was going wrong and, and so into the DfE and I said to them, you know, right, I want to, this is a bring out your dead moment. Tell me, tell me what the problems are and let's try and sort out what they are, but, but I'll be kind of annoyed if you leave it three, six months, yeah. and then suddenly come to me and say we've got a problem. So I can't fix things if people don't put them on the table. So that's how I've always worked. Uh, well, uh, and how is that taken by civil servants then? Because you know, there, there are cliches about the civil servants, as well as some very bright and exceptional people, but that it's, uh, it can be slow to, to react and often tries to prevent ministers from having any influence in the department because have the confidence that they'll outlast you. When you have that bring out your dead moment, did they react to that? Did people <laughs> say, actually, um, it, it's fucked? Yeah, actually, there were some where people just said, we don't know why we're doing this. We just <laughs> stopped doing it. Seriously. Wow. And, and so you've got to somehow cut through all those levels. 
So I'd, I, I did lots of floor walks, you know, I do all staff meetings and people have to hear it from you because by the time mm. it comes through several layers of, you know, civil service management, then they're not really sure. And actually you need to literally say when I, when I want, you know, proposals, I want to literally see the person who's done it, not their boss's boss's boss which is who normally comes into the room, but the person who actually came up with the idea. And you just cut through all the layers, and actually, you probably end up with three types of people, I've always felt. The ones that love being empowered and just think, this is brilliant. I, I'm, you know, people always... So I always had my office on the top floor, not because I wanted to be on the top floor, but because I liked going up in the lift, because it always gave me a chance to talk to people every single day. And it's fun. And it's <laughs> and it's fun. I used to get a lot of it. Um, but but it you know it's about it's a way of any way where you can just cut through the bureaucracy and get to talk to like typical civil servants about what they're doing and they get to talk to you. I used to go down and get a bacon sandwich, you know, With just, just to be <laughs> never ate it in public. <laughs> just to be around and and it's amazing how you do that and actually people will start to be much more frank about the challenges and, and their ideas and you're like right fine that sounds good send me some thoughts and we'll get on with it so that's how people would like it to run but that's not how every cabinet minister chooses to, to behave is it and sometimes they can get subsumed did you ever get the sense the civil service w were trying to stop you doing stuff like that we say minister there's no need to be talking to these they sometimes sometimes you get that but I, I reckon I was pretty good at spotting it because they'd always give you and I'd always say, right, you're doing the three routes thing, aren't you, on me here? Like, there's that route that obviously I won't like, then yeah. you're giving me that route and then you're doing this middle route and yeah. they'd be, like, busted. <laughs> so, so you, you know, I, I don't know, but, but you, just, you just have to really be clear-cut about where you're trying to get to but also why and try and get some buy-in for that and explain it. Bother, take the time to you know, get out to the seven DFE officers, as it was, around the country. You know, Stop kind of just sitting in your office expecting everyone through some kind of osmosis yeah. to get the message about what you want to happen. Give them some kind of a mission. You know, I used to say to them, there isn't some other department for education that's going to improve schools. Like, we're it. So for a whole load of kids around Britain and their parents, we're, you know, it's up to us every time, every term that's ticking by for inadequate schools. That's bang, that's it, they don't get it back. So just trying to give them some kind of real sense of purpose and mission, then being clear-cut about priorities so that people really felt like they knew where they personally fitted in, what we were trying to achieve, and what they were doing to get us closer to that, and then cutting out all of the rest of it it was the gubbins, as I would call it, or, you know, the, the non-essential stuff that is really demoralising for, for people to feel like they're working on. You've got the machinery of the civil service that you need to keep motivated and on, uh, and on message and, and uh, running effectively. You've also got schools, which is the, the front line, really, of the, of the department. Did you do many school visits, and, and, and are they as awkward as they look? I, I adored doing school visits. I absolutely love the school visits. They were, uh, I mean, you know, the, the best one I ever did was going back to my old school in Rotherham, Oakwood. Well, it was Oakwood Comprehensive. It's called, I think, Oakwood High School or something um, along those lines now. And I just thought, this isn't, this isn't work, is it? I mean, it was such great fun. Some of the, my old teachers came back. It was just, I love talking to the kids. And I'm still, you know, I was in Norwich um, at one of their secondary schools um, last week. And, you know, I love... 
the, the bit about the job that I loved the most was just being out in schools. Um, I loved doing the primary school, seeing the little people, as I called them, um, ever entertaining. And then just talking in the secondary schools with, you know, older kids about what they want to try and achieve, get out of their lives. I mean, it's just, I just found it totally inspiring. And I love meeting the teachers because, you know, these are the people that totally transformed my life prospects. And... And it's such a tough job. I mean, you're out there having to basically nail a performance every day. Mm. And, you know, I, I always really respected that. And it's a massively vocational profession as well. So for me, it was this dream job because I knew what impact it had had on my life. I felt massively passionate about it. And I just absolutely adored every second that I had a chance to do it. And, and I... The thing I'm most grateful for, A, is to have had the chance to do it. But B, although in the end I'm not doing it now, I literally woke up the next day and thought I didn't waste a single moment in that job trying to get stuff done. So that's all you can ask for, really. It's, I mean, it, it's so striking that so few ex-ministers and cabinet ministers talk in the way that you talk. Everyone has their own unique experience and people are definitely passionate about their briefs, but you seem to have a unique clarity as well as a, a, a level of energy that others don't possess I don't know <laughs> I don't know I was always told I was very hands-on but I just I don't know I... In these me too days that can be, <laughs> it can be misconstrued yeah yeah I don't know I just I just think it's a you know a, I just think it's great to be able to do any of these jobs and so do your best you're not doing them forever as I have proved. <laughs> well, when you're going out as a conservative a conservative state, state. <laughs> sounds a bit William, William Hague. <laughs> as a conservative minister. <laughs> <laughs> It was only, uh, he was here a few months ago. Um, <laughs> uh, well, it's probably about a year ago now. But um, it was only interviewing that I noticed another verbal thing that he does because he, everyone does this sort of high and then the low and then uh, they, hmm. uh, was it, he, he sort of hums a lot in between the words. Yes, he well, does. Yeah, and that's I right, found I that when mm, I mm, was the uh, leader of the opposition, more than most days would wake up totally demoralised. And, <laughs> <laughs> He's got a lovely sort of permanent hum about him. I once asked him what the UN was like, and he said, "It's party conference on speed." Just <laughs> 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 but when you're, when you're going one of those there, stalls that you like, selling oh, the place for the pie stalls. Um, but when you are going there as a conservative, conservative. Uh, minister. Is it hard? Because, you know, most teachers are in a teaching union. A lot of them are Labour supporters and the, the kids' parents might have said, say something embarrassing to the Tory or something like that. Did you ever get any jit from <laughs> students or teachers or head teachers? Not really. <laughs> Genuinely, no. Wow. I, I just thought I'm not going to make any promises about how I'll be because if I say I'm going to listen, everyone will find something I've done and go, oh, you didn't listen, you said you were going to... So I just thought I'm, I'm just going to convey how I feel about this, you know, I, and I'm just going to get on and do hopefully sensible stuff and try and find some common ground. Yeah. And for me, this whole area of social mobility, closing gaps, um, helping kids get the best start. I mean, as I said, teaching is a massively vocational profession and I see it as a profession as well. So I, I feel like 
for all of the battles between teachers and maybe governments of all shades actually over the years, underneath that is, uh, you know, I'm a, an accountant, I hate no one's perfect, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I see it as another profession and, and I, I kind of got that actually and and so I don't know I, I just loved working with all of them and we didn't always see eye to eye but all I ever asked was that where we could have a common agenda and make some progress we should get on with that where there were debates we were needed to have fine let's have those debates and actually they're quite healthy in a democracy but let's never let that stop us from getting on the stuff on with the stuff that we can do where we can make a difference. In terms of uh, the types of schools we now have uh, particularly in England and Wales, uh, the, the landscape was transformed by Andrew Adonis and then and then mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. Michael Grove. So we moved from a sort of predominantly comprehensive, um, free at the point of use system to now, where it's still free at the point of use. We've got academies and free schools, which are basically academies without a, a sort of predecessor school. If you watch the Labour Party conference this week, academies are still deeply controversial, not just on the left, but with a lot of people. They're uncomfortable about what they see as the influence of. Um, perhaps the private sector or the charity sector, or they just don't like the fact that the new model um, can allow uh, the, uh, the collection of debt and things like that. Uh, do you think that academies as an idea are the right model for secondary education? And why do you think there's never really been a, a sustained emotional defence of them as a principle? I think they can be, but I think they're not a silver bullet mm. for fixing the problems that education has. So where they can make... A big difference is like in my own constituency where we had a, a school that was was actually in a lot of local parents most local parents didn't even send their kids to it anymore and so when it went into special measures what really struck me was I didn't have a single letter complaining from a parent and I thought that was really sad actually that nobody locally was invested in that school to worry about the fact that one of our schools had gone into special measures it was taken over by um, ARC, and it's now one of the most improving schools. It's got some investment in it. It's got much better sports facilities for all the kids, and it's, it's transforming. But all of, all of the strategy has to be around school improvement. And fundamentally, school improvement is about great teaching. And great education is about um, a fantastic teacher who is at the top of their game every single day, it's about a child who's in that classroom, ready and capable of learning, and then it's about having the right stuff that they're getting to learn so that they can be successful in their life, so they can be the best version of themselves. Everything else is an enabler. Yeah. And once you start to realise that, then, yes, sure, academisation, you know, a school that's failing, becoming an academy, if it brings in that fresh impetus, brings in that energy, brings in those great teachers, that can transform it. But in and of itself, for some schools, it won't be enough. Mm. And so we were starting to look at the fact that in some communities, the problem with education is that the schools were having to cope with problems that were way outside. There's nothing to do. The kids were coming in, not in a position to yes. learn. And actually, even if you were maybe, you need the very best teachers in Britain to, to kind of get on with getting great grades for them and and so we did these things called opportunity areas that were working inside schools 
so helping teachers who were already there. So, so my, my kind of strategy was you can't ship everyone in from outside places. Actually, probably the people who are most invested at improving schools, say where I grew up in Rotherham, are teachers in Rotherham, mm. actually. So work with improving them and their teaching and help them to sort of actually become really outstanding in their field. Um, but then do work outside the schools with parents, you know, with businesses setting aspirations high and, and actually try and make sure that there's a, a more holistic approach to, to driving school improvement. But, you know, you've got to realise that it's not as simple as just rebadging the school. Yeah. That can work and it has worked. And actually we've seen it work in many, many places. But I think my observation was that for the, the toughest places often, it's not enough and you need more around it if you're really going to be successful and all I ever cared about and this is what I used to say in the DfE is change on the ground and delivery I'm not interested in the stats of how many academies or whatever what I'm interested in is are kids in schools that are getting hey I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Better. And what about grammar schools? Well, I think it's a good example of um, of politics always looking for a structural reform. So, you know, we said academies, and, and as, I, as I've said, I think academies were a catalyst and can be a catalyst for, yeah. for school improvement. Um, the La Labour Party just said, they'll stop academies. I don't know what the strategy is on school improvement. Yeah. Grammars, you know, many of them are fantastic schools giving a great uh, education to the kids who get in them. But clearly, for everyone else, there's, they, they don't cover that bit of the strategy. And I just think, eventually, you, you've got to recognise that you need, you need a whole education strategy, not just a strategy that covers some kids. And, you know, and, and that's not just in terms of mainstream schools. You know, there are something like 45,000, 50,000 kids who are not in mainstream schools, who are in so-called alternative provision because they've been excluded or they don't fit in, 80% of them will have a special educational need. And often when you dig into that, it's behavioural and, and actually when you dig into that, you know, there's a reason for it. You know, they're, they're people just like you and me, but the homes they might have been growing up in are totally different. And funnily enough, as a kid, they've reacted in a particular way to it. And most adults would have had problems being in these homes. And that whole bit of our education system totally fails. For the, that's not fair. Too often fails, for the most part, for those kids. And yet there are some of the most inspirational teachers in that part of our education system. So, so for me, it was all about lifting up the schools and the children's prospects who were lagging behind whilst also pushing ahead more broadly on improving standards. And then finally, looking at the broader experiences that children were getting at school, so not just their academics, but 
their opportunity to get work experience, to really get a sense of what careers are out there. Where are they aiming for in their own lives? You know, are they going to come out as rounded people able to take care of themselves when they are having their first relationships, etc.? And we were just starting to get into that, that broader part of, of kind of building people who aren't just smart, but people who can truly be successful. What about people, so not people with special educational needs, but what about those people who, for whatever reason that they choose, <laughs> decide to educate their children at home themselves? Mm. Like, what's the, what's the department's view on that? Well, um, <laughs> you see, we hadn't really got into home education. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's, there's a sharp end of it in the sense that, I mean, for a lot of parents, you know, for them, it, they actually feel it works. Um, but like, does, how does it work then? But it's not, it, you know, there isn't that level of regulation around it that perhaps you might really want to see. Um, so for some parents, they think it's, it's really good, but then, you know, there are other areas around home education where actually it's just a smokescreen for the kid who's going into some religious school. Um, and, and so there's all sorts of well, it's reasons. black market. Um, effectively, so some of the some some school some religious schools where parents are sending their kids, for example, they will say, well, they're not really at school. It's almost like a Sunday school, or you know, it's like right, a, okay. it, it's not really their school because I'm home educating. And so there's there was a growing need for the DfE to move into this space of saying, right, we need to kind of almost respect parents' right to be able to educate their own kids for the minority that want to do it, but it shouldn't be used as a smoke screen for for children ending up in places being educated where basically they're not right and, and we shouldn't be allowing it. And do they get, like, textbooks and things to help them? They just say, I, I just don't know. It's such a strange... They just go, right, well, I'll, I'll educate them and they'll turn up for the exams and... And, and, and this is why, you know, you need to also improve this side of alternative provision. So, because for some parents, they feel like they're in that position of having to home educate because they can't find that school that can cope with their kid. And, and I think that's a tragedy. And I don't, think, I don't think parents should have to accept second best because their child perhaps has a particular, I don't know, um, uh, behavioural... I, I, I just think that, um, you know, you've got to somehow create an education system that can really work for, for all kids, not just most. So you find yourself in a position where, uh, after a, a few years in the job, you then you're summoned to Downing Street uh, early this year, and you're offered uh, the Department for Work and Pensions, which you turned down. And according to a few reports I read, you were in Downing Street, or you were talking to the Prime Minister, for three hours. <laughs> Was it really that long? I wasn't with the PM the whole time, no. So I just didn't want to leave the DfE. I didn't think I'd been given any good reasons to leave the DfE. Yeah. I felt that perhaps surprisingly to myself in the teaching profession, I was a Conservative Secretary of State for Education that was basically getting on pretty well and yeah. starting to build some bridges that I felt were important. Um, I had just launched um, a social mobility strategy that I thought was fundamental to closing all these gaps I've been talking about. And uh, I wanted to be able to get on and do that. And I have to say, I'd watched the rest of the reshuffle and seen everyone else being allowed to stay. So um, I just thought, no, I'm sorry, life's too short. Um, I thought, I've, I've done a few jobs um, in Cabinet. They've been a privilege. But this is what I really care about. And therefore, I didn't come into politics for a job, to be honest. It's not, not really been about that. 
Um, it, it's always been about what I think I can accomplish, what I can achieve. And so I just thought, no, I think this is just like overwhelming for me in terms of social mobility. So I just decided to keep working on it. And that's, that's what I'm doing. And I actually think um, in the context of, of everything else that's been going on in our country, you know, when I look back at that, the referendum vote in 2016, the 2017 election, I just, my personal view, I don't know whether I'm right, but I just feel like at the heart of it, there's a whole load of people that feel like they don't have opportunities in life like they should be able to expect, like they don't have a stake in our country like they should be able to expect. And I just think that's the real problem to fix. And that's what I want to put my time into, and that's what I'm doing. And Teresa said, um, but I'd really <laughs> like you to do work and pensions. She did. And I, I, so I left with zero rancour. I, I just was like very, you know, nobody has to give you any of these jobs. I mean, let's be really clear. They'll, they're all a privilege to have. And so I, you know, it was a privilege to be offered another job in Cabinet. I've been a Cabinet Minister for the best part of seven years. And that was an amazing privilege. But just for me, in terms of my choices... And what I felt was most important to me, it was working on this issue that was just what totally drives me. And so, you know, it was thanks, but no thanks. And also she needed somebody in that job that was 150% committed to it. And I knew that couldn't be me. And so I just thought there wasn't a match. And, and that's that. But did, so it starts off, she rings you up. Is it on the phone? And it's switched. Not on the phone, <laughs> So no, you get called in, so, so you get told... Into Parliament, to behind Speaker's chair, or into Downing Street? Into Downing Street. Through the back door or through the front door? God, I can't remember. I think I went through the front door. Wow. Because that's <laughs> unusual, isn't I it? I Usually they sort of screw you in through the back or they'll do I it I think I Parliament. went through the front door, yeah. So you sit down in front of her and she says... Well, how did, what form of words did she choose? Well, I guess she just... I mean, it's just literally, you know, thanks for everything you've done in education and I want you to do D DWP. And you say... I've I say thank you very, very much. I've loved every moment in education. In fact, I've loved it so much <laughs> that um, in that case I'll keep on working on all those issues that I've, I've been working on, but I'll do it from the back benches. So you didn't try and say, please let me stay? Well, I, so yeah, I, I absolutely said I'd like to stay. And, and so I, I was, if I'm frank, I, I kind of did spend time obviously trying to find out what was behind shifting and, you yeah. know, grammars, faith schools, what was it? But also sort of saying, you know, I, I did want to stay. Yeah. But, but giving, giving her, giving the government chance to reflect on the fact that I was going to go. Yeah. Um, otherwise, and that's just, you know, quite a big decision for everyone. Um, but in the end, I've no regrets. And, and I think in a funny way, I've got more freedom now. I think actually, as any MP, it's quite important through the moment with Brexit to be able to represent your patch yeah. properly, you know, unfettered. And I think I can do that better. There's no doubt about that. And I think I can work on the stuff that I really care about um, I'm not having to spend 70% of my time stopping things going wrong in the DfE in about <laughs> six to nine months' time. Um, and, and also, you know, I, I just think life's too short to be... And, and I, can, I can reflect. I, I, you know, I've spent eight years in, in, as a minister and 
And I, I just felt in a funny way like it was time to just take stock of it mm. as well. Like you don't have to keep spinning at 100 miles an hour. You know, sometimes there's, there's as much value in actually standing back and saying, well, what have I learned from all of this? And on top of that, you get to sit in the naughty corner in Parliament. I get there. to sit in the naughty corner. I go back to where I started. So you sit right... So The rough trade, as it's known. Rough trade, and it's where <laughs> Anna Subri and uh, Tim Lawton sit. Yes. Nicky Morgan's back there now. Mm-hmm. Uh, who are the naughtiest people there? <laughs> um, definitely Tim Lawton. Um, Anna Subri kind of turned up in 2010 uh, after the core team was established. <laughs> and then there's Keith Simpson, who is sort of the, uh, like the father figure that tries to vaguely keep us on the straight and narrow, but is actually quite funny. But Tim Lawton is the ringleader in he, the end. He has got to be on the naughtiest. But what's quite nice is he's an arch-Brexiteer and you're a Remainer. You know, he's uh, probably on the right of the party, you're probably on the left, and yet you're united by, frankly, just the great fun of misbehaving. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And we just, I mean... I, yeah, I, I just, I, so, so I ended up there partly because, um, as most people who know me know, so I generally cut things a bit fine time-wise. So I always think I've got bags of time to get to the next thing and then I'm like, oh my God, I'm meant to have been there you know, five minutes ago. So that place where we sit, which is, so if the speaker's here and you've got like Labour there and the Conservatives here, it's right there. So the beauty is, A, you can kind of come in without being noticed. B, it's just, I don't know, what the, what are those things in your eyes where you can't really notice Peripheral movement? vision. Yeah, it's just out of your peripheral vision yeah. if you're John Burko. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> but you're close enough to really be able to barrow it. And, um, and so we just have a complete, I mean, I, I, I've always just laughed, had a good old laugh there and it's funny. And have you, do you heckle much? I heckle quite a lot. And are there particular people that you heckle? Well, when that, when the leader of the SNP gets up, everyone goes, oh, God. <laughs> or, or if you're Anna Sudbury, she always shouts, Donald, where's your trousers? Because <laughs> he's got a really big, he's got a really big stomach. <laughs> with a, genuinely, with a, with a waistcoat that struggles. <laughs> and then the weirdest thing, here's the thing that I don't, don't or do get, I don't know. His trousers are like the right length. Yeah. So what gets me is that he's been to a tailor and this bloke's like got the waistline under his stomach and then measured. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, yeah, you'd yeah. think you'd go for the hip thing. Yes. But it's actually been fitted. <laughs> that's, that's the thing. That like If he ever slims off and pulls it up, he'll be up here. Which I don't think will work, but anyway, there you go. So, so Ian Blackford gets it and his, uh, and his Yeah, definitely. Clothes. There's a few others, but... Uh, yeah. uh, Corbyn? Oh, dear. <laughs> well, I think... I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, he does go on quite a lot, doesn't he? I mean, he does very long questions. So most of the time, we're sort of shouting at him to give way, which is yeah. Parliament language for as if you're doing a speech. <laughs> Um, and then the other thing that he always does, which everyone knows, is he does these Facebook... These are Facebook videos. Yes. So he, the final bit is always for Facebook. So everyone's shouting, Facebook! <laughs> Facebook monologue! Oh, that's funny. <laughs> but it's obvious. It's obvious what he's doing, but there you go. And, and then there's the other lot who just, you know, everyone's shouting, nurse! 
Nurse. <laughs> Who's that? So who would you shout? I don't know. I, it just depends how desperate. <laughs> oh, it just depends how desperate it gets. <laughs> what about people on your own of your own party? Do you ever heckle any of those? No, no, generally not. There's more murmurings. <laughs> more murmur. Oh, I, yeah. Oh, no, <laughs> the other day. So, and look, Michael Fabricant will be fine with this because it is a running joke. Anytime Michael Fabricant asks a question, it's always about Birmingham and, and Andy Street, Andy Street the West Midlands who is mayor. the West Midlands mayor, always gets mentioned. Yeah. So Michael did a question, the last PMQs, and Tim, were like, Tim and I were like, right, Andy Street is coming <laughs> up. And he asked this question, there was no mention of Andy Street at all. But then when the PM stood up, she was like, well, I'm very grateful for his question, and Andy Street, the mayor of wherever, and we went, way, there you go, bang. So Michael thought it was really funny. But anyway, there you go. But so, yes, but mostly, I mean, it's just, it, it keeps you going, doesn't it? It must, I imagine it does, yeah. I mean, at least, I, it just feels like, and I, I know so few members of the public would agree with this, I don't know if people in, the, in this room sort of share this concern, but Prime Minister's Questions was always the showpiece event of the week, and mm. it still is. But it's not as good as it was. It's it just not feels as a bit formulaic. That's the thing. Yeah. So, you know that Corbyn's got his Facebook script, basically. That's what it is. He's got a Facebook yeah. Facebook script that they are going to get on after straight after <laughs> after the uh, PMQs, and then the PM's got her script. So there isn't quite the sort of cut and thrust or you know ad libbing that. He Maybe we've seen in the past that I used to think was quite entertaining. Because he leaves pauses a lot, doesn't it? I think it was Tim Lawton got him. I'm sure I've told this story before, <laughs> but there's one where it was him against Cameron. He said, I was in Europe this week, uh, Mr Speaker, meeting with senior European politicians, and one of the questions they were asking me was... Uh, Tim Who Lawton are went, you? Who are you? <laughs> <laughs> Who are you? And he, what was really funny was he couldn't take it. He went, no, that's not what they asked me. <laughs> he really doesn't have a sense of humour. I'm being serious, mate. I think they both. Um, I think they both do the death stare from, which is the worst thing you can do because it makes people laugh even more, of course. Oh, that's what you get to see, and it's, it, I would encourage everyone to try and get tickets to Prime. I mean, maybe you can help sort as well out with tickets. Just, um, <laughs> it's to go because what you don't see, it's almost like watching a football match live rather than on the telly. It's mm. all the off-the-ball mm. stuff that you don't see. Indeed, yeah. And Ed Balls would always do the flatlining thing to, to Cameron Osborne. I, well, I saw Frank Lampard bundled off at Rotherham v Derby the other day and uh, that was much better much better in person. It was, <laughs> yeah, yeah. At Rotherham, of course. <laughs> then on TV. <laughs> and Rotherham defeated 1-0 at the weekend by Nottingham Forest. So uh, but we did uh, beat Derby 1-0. Well, oh, that's great. I mean, that's win-win. That's, that's the last time we won, actually. Um, <laughs> do you go to any football matches, then? Not loads, but I try and get along. So I was back up in Rotherham just seeing family and, and doing social mobility stuff, so we went along to the Derby game. The Derby game. <laughs> just slipping to William Hay the whole time these days. Um, anyway, we won, surprisingly. Uh, because Rotherham uh, used to play at Millmore. Yes. Did you ever go there? Yes, yeah. They do, or did, the best pies. <laughs> They're still doing the oh pies. Oh, my God. They are still doing the pies. Oh, the pies at Millmore. I went... I was up in Leeds for something and ended up going to watch Rotherham Grimsby mm. uh, I think 2003 <laughs> and I had three pies. Yeah, they're good. They're the best meat pies I've ever had. Yeah, they are pretty good. I tell people at Forest, I'm like, you've got to find out what they were doing at Millmore back in 03. <laughs> it was, 
they only like one pound eighty each as well. Bargain. Oh my god, I that well, was one of the best days of my life. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> don't have to respond to that actually. Like maybe. Well, I need to lose weight. Sure. That's the, that's the, <laughs> just the truth. I need to eat less pies. Um, but growing up in Rotherham and becoming a conservative, uh, what did your family think of that? Um, I remember when I rang up and said I joined the Conservative Party. Yeah. That caused a bit of a ripple. Like no one, a no one in our family had joined a political party. Yeah. I was like, oh, I've just seen his joint Tory party. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, it's fine. You know, I thought they they all thought. Good luck, and yeah, uh, um, I don't think I don't think any of us kind of expected it to spiral out of control but, <laughs> like it did. But there was no kind of uh, bloody hell, love this Tory stuff's no, gone on I... long enough. She's just rebelling. Well, <laughs> so I was, must have been rebelling. So I would say that um, I mean I grew up totally surrounded by all this militant left stuff that we've got now. Yeah. So for me, funnily enough, Jeremy Corbyn was the establishment that I was kicking back against. And I just thought they were pretty cack, to be honest. <laughs> and just really negative, and I didn't like it. They were very aggressive. And it was just a total turn-off at the time. Put me off politics full stop, if I'm honest. We should be clear, when you say cack, you mean uh, shit. Rubbish, and not yeah. the not the Conference Arrangements Committee. Uh, <laughs> for anyone who's no. been watching BBC Parliament all week like I have. Um, which they also do now control. So it's actually, uh, factually, uh, absolutely right. Uh, but did your friends think it was weird, or did any of them join with you? None of them joined with me. <laughs> and, uh, no, no, none of, them, of course, none of them joined. And um, they all thought it was hysterical when I became a parliamentary candidate for yeah. the Tory party in 2001. They just thought this is the funniest thing ever. Um, so, yeah, but I just thought, well... So the thing, thing that I've always massively been... I, I just believe in choice and... I thought, I know people don't want to vote Tory, but in the end, we need to be out there just trying to at least say there is a, there's an alternative and be around for the moment when they're ready to look for something different, um, which what? took a while, actually. But in the end, I, I, that's all I care about, really, is... So, so for young people now, it's the same... Maybe it's the same thing. Maybe overwhelmingly they might be thinking they'll vote for Labour, but our democracy still needs to give them a choice. So in terms of what politicised you, was it a reaction against the hard left in Rotherham? Or what was the pull factor for the Tories? Was there a particular leader or a moment that made you think, I want to join that party? I think, I think sort of on the Labour side, I, just, I just, just didn't like the negativity. I could see all the problems. But when they talked about the solutions, I just didn't... It just didn't... They seemed simplistic. You know, like, our family always had to add up and make sure our money added up, and, and yet they were just spending, spending, spending. And, and so I, I just couldn't... You know, they, they, were, they were moaning about companies, you know, not being successful or whatever. You know, my dad was losing his job, and, and so I, I just didn't really quite get where they were coming from on the solution. So I understood the problems, yeah, and I, I agreed with them on the problems, actually. But I never bought the solutions. And then the thing that really, I suppose, galvanised me was... So I was growing up in this community where it was, it, was, it was tough, actually. A lot of my, me, my dad, and my friend's parents were losing their jobs. Yeah. But, you know, 
I was listening to Conservatives. I, if I'm honest, uh, I got this message from someone like Margaret Thatcher saying it's about effort and reward. It doesn't matter where you start. I'm trying to create a country where anyone can do well. And I, that really got through to me. And I found it really liberating and empowering. And I thought, well, I can do that. I can, I can knuckle down at school and, and I want to make something of myself. And it just felt to me like that was a positive message about where I could get to. And I was fed up of people telling me about where I was. I knew that. I didn't need people telling me about the challenges that Rotherham faced. Even now, I went back there two weekends ago. I'm interested in where, what it can be yeah. and how you change it and make it better not just talking about the problems, it's about solutions for me and where people are trying to get to. And for me, the Tories were the party that were really talking about where I could get to with my life and helping me do that. And I think, you know, the last time we won a landslide election was in 1987. And for people in my party, it's 31 years since we really nailed an election in this country and convincingly won the argument with people. And I think it's that long because that was the last time we really communicated properly with people about really understanding where they're trying to get to in their lives and having some solutions to help them do it. I think once we can do that again, maybe we'll actually start winning elections with majorities of more than 12. <laughs> Which is, which is what happened in 2015. That's our best result we've had in, well, since 1992. Yeah. So, so we've got to change. And that means <coughs> fundamentally reaching out to a brand new generation of, of, of voters, and it means reaching out right into the centre ground of, of the British public, which you talked about the fact that parties are sort of there and there, and I think that's right. But I don't think being in the centre ground means you can't have a massively radical agenda yeah. to shift Britain on. I think you can. Well, in the spirit of reaching out, let's reach out into the audience and uh, take some audience questions. Jules will have uh, a roving mic. Uh, we've got uh, a couple down at the front, so we can take those uh, uh, easily and uh, together. So, uh, yes, if you could just ask a question. Let us know your name as well. And uh, if we can ask for one-sentence questions and one-sentence answers, we'll try and get around as many people as possible. Hi, my name's Sarah. Um, gonna cheat a bit. Um, really inspiring hearing you talk tonight. Quick question. Um, so earlier on, it felt like there were two William Hagues on, on stage. <laughs> Great impression. Um, then you did a, an impression of Anna Subri doing a Scottish impression, which is two impressions at once. Amazing. Um, are there any other impressions you can do? And That's a great side question. question. I feel like Ooh. you should do it. Yes. Ooh. Yeah. The, I yeah. I do do. I do do impressions. <laughs> so who else? I can't believe I didn't think of that at the time. Thank you so much. I, I, do, I just, just, lots of people. <laughs> Any's fine, just have to be the best. Boris. Ah, oh, I can do Boris. Can do Boris. <laughs> Hi, Jay. Hi, yeah, great. Social mobility, fantastic. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I can't do Teresa. I can't do Teresa, actually. That, she's, diff she's quite difficult, actually. What other fit? Sturgeon? Oh, no, no, no. You're getting way beyond my uh, competency. I've got, I've got good, <laughs> good Patrick McCoughlin. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. Mm, if yeah. only people knew who he was. <laughs> we'll have to get him down here. Do you think he'd be up for doing it? Yeah, probably, actually. Oh, that'd be great. Because he was He's a cop a one, laugh, wasn't he? Yeah. Maybe do your best accent, if not. 
That's a great idea. Just bring you back in disguise. Excellent question. Yes. Uh, so, Matt, I believe you've just been performing at the notoriously bonkers Edinburgh Fringe. That's right. And, yeah. Justine, you're about to perform at the Conservative Party Conference Fringe. <laughs> yeah. What tips could you give each other on how to please a crowd? Oh, I like oh, it. Crikey. Oh, crikey. Oh, that's a great question. You go first. <laughs> I just think, um, prepare what you're going to say. Yeah, good point. Uh, speak without notes. I, I always think just have like bullet points or landing places that you're going to have. So I think. I've also got a cheat sheet. The whole way down. That's because it's new material. You I don't have that in anywhere. That's a basic auto cue, isn't it? You know, have, it, have notes yeah. um, sometimes if you need them. Um, I just think play to your strengths, be yourself, and uh, yeah. I'd, yeah, definitely go for the last good. one. Just, just be yourself and know what you want to try and say. What do you want them to leave the room thinking, basically? Uh, what's the message? Great question. Uh, there's a gentleman <laughs> at the bar there with his, with his hand. If, if anyone else would like to ask a question, indicate now, and I can see where I need to come to. Hi, I'm Robert. Hi, um, Robert. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Um, in terms of personality... Is that the question? Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> In terms of personality and motivations, what are your thoughts on Boris Johnson? Ooh, that's a good one. So, I, so I, I've known Boris for a really long time because he was London Mayor, I was Transport Secretary. Yeah. You know, I've, I've been sat in his City Hall office talking aviation with him, with him singing... Islands in the stream. <laughs> that is what? what we are. As a Boris, I Boris Island. You're like, look, we've got to get serious here. So, I mean, he, in a really dull political world, I enjoyed working with him because we absolutely could have some funny moments when, for the most part, it's obviously massively serious. Um, we don't agree on Brexit, and he knows that. Uh, and I generally, probably, I am one of the people that can call him out, and he, he's fine with that. So, he, he, I, 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 do I try and keep him on the straight and narrow? A little bit, yeah. I'd be like, oh, come on. That's, and what would he say? Hey, Justine, I, I I'd can't. be like, you've been bad. You've been a bad person doing your article. 1,500 words. Yeah, What's I, the point I, of us talking as a cabinet on 1,500 words yeah. on... Checkers and stuff when you're writing in the flipping whatever. You, I, 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 well, I've got to make a living. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jay, yeah, no, all right, all right, all right. You're right, you're right, you're right. I won't do it again until next week. I think you will take it with a pinch of salt. Uh, yeah, come on, Justy. What is democracy <laughs> yeah, exactly. if we can't express ourselves? <laughs> Very good. No, so, yeah, it, you know. We've, we've just got this very frank relationship, actually, so I, I tell it like I say it to him. That's good. And he's fine about that, actually. I think no problems at all. So we get on, we get on fine, but we just have different views on stuff. On the most important issue. On the most important issue, <laughs> the most Brexit. Important issue. Uh, right, is there, anyone, is there anyone up on the balcony? Usually there is one. Shout if there is. Yes, there is. We've got a question. Oh, this there is. The final up question there. of the night, and it's going to be the best question ever asked. <laughs> pressure. At an event. No pressure at all. Do wait for the microphone. It's coming up. Jules is coming up with this microphone. Here we go. Embrace yourselves, everyone, for the brace, greatest brace. question ever asked. Here we go. And let us know your name. Drum roll. Andrew. Andrew. Um, some of my very right-wing Tory friends uh, express horror that, that all of the teachers are left-leaning because it's a vocational job and it doesn't pay enough. So given that Tories need to be paid a lot of money to work, 
How can we get more torn teachers? Oh, how do we get... That's a really good question. How do we get... Or how do you get more Tory teachers? I think the short answer is empower the overwhelming number of teachers who actually aren't that political and just want to be fired up going into work every single day and make a difference, give kids a great start, give them an agenda that they can genuinely buy into that's, uh, that's one from the Conservative Party. And I, I felt like I was starting to get there. Um, when I was at the DfE on social mobility, and give them the mission, the mission of what we're trying to accomplish for our children and why it matters for our country, and that's it. I mean, it's literally, not everything has to be red or blue political. I mean, it's about something that's bigger than that for me. Oh, there you go. What, what, what do you think the answer is? So there's something around, there was two bits as to that. <laughs> part of it is the profession and building up the profession. Part of it is making sure they are competitively and properly paid. Simple as. Yeah, that is, that is part of the answer. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, well, one last question. It is the biggest, you say it's the biggest issue facing the, the country when we talk about Brexit, but there's another big question that's <laughs> dominated really the last few years uh, of British politics. What's the naughtiest thing you've ever done? Um, I think I used really inappropriate language. At not this reshuffle, but the reshuffle before when I went into Difford. What sort of... So, and, and can you give us a flavour or...? I... Yeah. It, not my proudest moment. So, I... Yes, I just was... I just, yeah, effed and blinded at David Cameron for switching me out of transport when I felt that was deeply unfair. Um, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I love Difford and it turned out it was right. So, <laughs> so there you go. But I'm not proud of it. But I, I thought I was out of line when I looked back on it. And I, I was, actually. And was it face-to-face -face or on the phone? Totally face-to-face. -to -face, and yeah. what did you say? Fucking I all day. Lose my <laughs> <laughs> I lose my temper about... So I'm, I'm very steady. You know, so so, so um, I lose my I probably lose my temper about once every five years, but he got the you know half decade <laughs> loss of temper. So I'm not proud of that. But anyway, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. There you go. That is that was naughty. And how, uh, <laughs> oh, it's amazing. I mean, how how did he take it? Did he, Bloody hell. I think he took it pretty well, actually. Bloody hell, I didn't. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's just say stuff. I left him in no uncertain terms <laughs> yeah. about what I thought. Well, I, I, don't, I don't think I am a cunt, actually. No, I am. I'm having a pretty I, I like to job. think he respects it, but I don't think it, I don't think it was good performance on my part. But hey, there you go. You, no one, you know, that's that. Oh, I think that's there the you best go. You asked the question, that's the answer. It was a brilliant answer. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, before we thank Justine, just to let you know uh, who the next guests are. There's been a slight rejig on some of the guests, but we're now booked up until January. Next month, we're joined by Carwin Jones, the First Minister of Wales, so technically the leader of a country. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm not saying that to his face. Uh, and then in November, we have Emily Thornbury. Uh, the two Christmas specials at the Leicester Square Theatre that will be announced, and in January, we'll be joined by David Blunkett. Um, so, exactly. <laughs> I'm glad one person's excited. Um, and I will announce the Christmas specials uh, as soon as I can. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a pleasure to be back. 
Uh, you are always a wonderful crowd. Thank you so much for coming. I hope you enjoyed it. And please give a huge thank you to such a wonderful guest, Justine Greening. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there you go, Justine Greening, one of the best guests we've had at the political party. She was absolutely superb and great fun to talk to. And it, as always, the hour flew by, but it really did. I remember looking at the clock at one point and thinking, crikey, this has been an hour and it only felt like about half that. She was a superb guest, full of passion, but what a shame. And it does, it, I don't know, what, obviously, I don't know what your politics are because so many people listen that everyone's politics is different and that's a great thing, but there has to be... Maybe all of us have to sort of accept that whatever the political leanings of the leaders of the party at the moment, there is no doubt that a lot of very talented people are finding themselves not in leadership positions or not even in shadow cabinet or cabinet positions. And that is a real problem for British politics. It's not just a problem in this country, it's a problem elsewhere as well. But when you get really talented, gifted people... That's what they're in politics for. And if politics was a meritocracy, people like Justine Greening would still be in government trying to change education for the better. Um, she was a superb guest. We have some wonderful guests coming up. So for the live shows, uh, there have been some alterations um, to the lineups, but this is how they stand now. Next month, October, my guest will be Carwin Jones, the First Minister of Wales, the outgoing First Minister of Wales and leader of the Welsh Labour Party. If you saw the Labour Party conference this speech, this week rather, his speech, I mean, there was him, Emily Thornby and An Angela Rayner who really stood out for me and his was absolutely brilliant. In October, sorry, oh, sorry October, Carwin Jones. In uh, November, Emily Thornbury, I'm delighted to have on. Uh, I've met her a few times. Uh, in fact, she came to see me in Edinburgh this year and we always have a really good laugh. I've no doubt she'll be a, 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 that will be a classic episode. Uh, and in January, it'll be David Blunkett. Two Christmas specials are on sale now at the Leicester Square Theatre. There will be political parties with a difference. They tend to be a bit more raucous and I'm in the process of booking some very interesting and special guests for those. So do look out for those. Tickets for all the political parties at the Other Palace are on sale on the Other Palace website, theotherpalace.co.uk. I think I'm right in saying they're sold out until February next year, but always check because sometimes on the day there are returns or people will tweet me to say that there are um, they can't go. So follow me on Twitter, at Matt Ford. Um, and also email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. I had some lovely emails after the shows we did in Scotland with Tommy Sheridan and John Swinney. Um, so keep them coming in. And it could just be anything. It can be a, 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 re a request for a guest. It can be just a reflection on an interview or a suggestion for the podcast, whatever it is. They are all, um, all those emails are read in the, in the wonderful spirit in which they're intended. So thank you for downloading this. And as always, if you could subscribe, share it, get your friends listening to it and leave a review uh, on whatever podcast platform you listen to. That would be very, very helpful. I will see you in a week. This show was produced by Daisy Knight. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.